Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 6 is uh, where we are this morning. Psalm chapter 6. If you do not own a Bible or have a Bible, please reach out in front of you. There should be probably a black Bible located out in front of you. And uh, please get that out. Follow along with me um, as I read this passage of Scripture to us this morning. This is the Word of God. Let us read together. Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my mourning. Moaning, excuse me. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I am a person that loves silence. I absolutely love it. And I don't, and I've been asking myself even this week is why do I love silence so much? I think it's because so much of my life isn't silent. Uh, there always seems to be something buzzing. Uh, there always seems to be, maybe even the conversations within my own head, um, even in the, the diagnostics of our own house, because of Cash playing iPad all the time, the sound of Elmo is constantly ringing through our house, and it's often the same 10 seconds of the same video for 16 to 17 hours can be heard. And every so often, I will tell you, confessionally, I'm a terrible parent, uh, my kids will tell you that. And one of that is, is that Cash has found the ability to find videos that we would not approve of, but we can't keep him off of. It's not naked people, okay? It's people riding rides. And if you've ever ridden a, a ride before, like a crazy roller coaster, sometimes I've heard they, in, they have caused people to use language that is inappropriate as they go down the hill. 
And so every so often, you can step into our house and sit, hear the same four-letter word over and over and over and over. We're talking 12, 13, 14 hours out of the day he can get hooked on a video. I love silence. It is such a gift. I think that's why I often get up early is because it's the only time my house is quiet. I enjoy it. That's why I like going to the woods. Because it's quiet. That's why I like being on the lake, because it's quiet. Right? But even as a person who loves silence, um, there are moments in life where silence actually leads to more pain and confusion. Follow me? Typically, that is in a relational silence. We may call it the, the silent treatment. Uh, uh, when we, we don't have the opportunity to hear from someone, or if someone is not responding to us, when we're speaking to them, um, it will often lead to more fear, more frustration. Um, it's uneasiness because you know that there is a broken relationship if the silent treatment has been implemented. Follow? It's though a weight has been placed upon our chest. The conversation seems to be very much uh, one-sided. That moment, you know, when you've texted somebody, and we live in such an instantaneous belief of response that you text somebody and your expectation is, is as you sit there looking at your phone, why haven't they responded yet? Well, it's been two seconds. They haven't even finished reading yet, right? Or you get an email from a person and you didn't respond, and so they just keep blowing up your email. It's like, don't you know that the rule is you get 24 hours, people? In case you didn't know that, let me just tell you, there's a 24-hour rule on email responding, okay? People are doing other things while you're texting them. Did you know that? They're not just sitting by their phone waiting, I hope someone texts me. I hope someone texts me. I hope someone texts me. But you understand that anxiety, right? It's like, then you begin to be paranoid. Well, why aren't they responding? Right? So then you get the text, text, call. Right? Why have you picked up? I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> why haven't you responded to me? Or, or even more so, you're in a, a disagreement. You're in an argument with someone that you love about or with your child, and you're, you're trying to have this conversation, and it often comes out as you're waiting for some sort of response, and you're looking at this person, and we have all probably said this, like, answer me. Like, say something. Are, are you listening to me? We've all experienced this sort of thing, interaction in our human relationships. And yet one thing that the psalm, this psalm in particular, and other psalms will lead us to is this silence that can happen in our relationship with God. That we are 
experiencing some season in life where it seems like God, we've often, in Christianese, we decide this as distance. We call it a desert. We, we call it uh, this season of uneasiness, uh, this season of drifting, possibly. But this season where we appear to be pleading our case before an almighty God, and from our perspective, he is silent. Has God ever been silent in your life? Why? Because doesn't the silent treatment sound like something that little kids do? Or really immature boyfriend or girlfriend? Why would God ever be silent toward us? Aren't we his children? Aren't we his sons? Aren't we his daughters? If you're in Christ? But if you've ever experienced this, I'm saying like really experienced it. You know that feeling of uneasiness. Why? Why would God do this? Psalm 6 has been adopted as what is called like a, a, a penitential type of psalm. Uh, it, it's one of about seven or so prayer, psalm, poem that was written to convey uh, deep anguish of its author. Specifically, the Bible tells us here that this psalm was written by uh, David. We don't have time this morning to dive into who David was. We've discussed that um, in earlier psalms. But these types of psalms uh, reveal, as we saw in Pastor Todd's sermon last week that he did a phenomenal job on, is, is a lament. And part of that lament is this penitential, like of this um, confession, though we don't know what the sin is here, is that, that David is coming to God and is revealing and confessing to God his deep anguish over some sin that David has committed, and God is silent, or at least is slow in responding back to what David is experiencing. We see that within this psalm that it's really split into two sections. You've got the first seven verses that are about what David is feeling about his sin and where it has led him before the Lord. And then the, the following verses, eight and beyond, is a, a reflection of God's kind of, what did God do? Okay, what is the response of God? And so we, we see that in these passages, and so let's, let's jump back to the text, open back up your Bibles, turn with me again, Psalm chapter 6, let's look at some of these things very briefly this morning. It says this, that when we look at the first few verses, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. That word rebuke there um, is also where we get the word discipline. So that's what, what, what David is saying here in this text, he's saying, Oh Lord, he comes before the Lord in prayer, in song, in a poem, and he's declaring before the Lord, do not discipline me, do not rebuke me, not in your anger. Now, one thing that's very clear is that David isn't saying, don't correct me. David isn't saying, don't discipline me. David is saying before God, don't do it in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
See, followers of Jesus actually want the correction of God. What we don't want to ever experience is because we have a little bit deeper understanding than non-Christians um, because we know the, the Scripture is what the wrath of God entails. David, as God's son, is pleading before the Lord, do not discipline me in your, your anger. Now, if you are a parent of a child, or if you are a kid or have ever been a kid in here, you know those two differences. How many of you have ever done something wrong and your parents disciplined you in anger? Right? You've been disciplined in eight. Avery Crosby just raised her hand. Just want everybody to see that. <laughs> you didn't see it. But just to prove that Pastor Todd is still up here and we're down here, but it's a little bit closer than maybe we were thinking. Okay? <laughs> Leanne, never oust yourself. All right? Okay? You've been disciplined. You, you broke the law of the house, and you've been disciplined in anger. Anybody? Parents, can you freely admit you should have walked away before you grounded, spanked, you know, don't do that, little Johnny? I mean, <laughs> there's all kinds of things in the way people discipline their kids now, right? <laughs> if you want to call it that. But anyway, you, you, you disciplined in anger. Anybody guilty? It happened, and you responded, right? So David is saying, as God's son, Lord God, I, 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 I'm deserving. I have broken your law. I'm deserving of, con, uh, of correction, but I do not need that in your anger. I do not need your wrath to boil upon me, to be placed upon me. But Lord, uh, discipline me in your grace. How many of you guys have ever been disciplined? And your parents weren't angry in doing so. Because there's a difference in sternness and anger. You have, and I have. The purpose of discipline is not abuse. The, the purpose of discipline is not punishment. You break into my house, that is I'm going to punish you. In the name of Jesus, and pray for your salvation as you breathe your last. That's punishment, all right? That's wrath. Discipline is not for the breaking of people. Discipline in God's mercy and grace is for the sanctification, that's a big church word, for the growth of people into Christ's likeness. It's for the discipline, that, that means that there is a transformation that takes place, that a person is going to build and grow. If you've ever been to the gym before, we call this like muscle hypertrophy, all right? It's that there are people that walk around the gym and they, and they think, man, I've lifted weights, and then there are people that go to the gym that, that truly understand for growth to take place, I must experience pain. I must press this weight until I cannot press it any more to where you try to do the shower and wash your hair the next day, but you did biceps the day before and you can't, and you're trying to touch, so you just squeeze the shampoo on the shower wall and you just... Rub your head on it because you cannot. Those people lift weights. Other people have gym memberships. 
The difference is, is to go through the strain, all you CrossFitter cults out there, you go through the strain in order to see what? Transformation. People who never get to that muscle hypertrophy, they never grow even though they go to the gym. Why? Because they didn't press through the pain. They weren't willing to go through the pain to get transformation. See, when God disciplines his kids, he's doing so in order for transformation. And it is often done not through you winning the lottery, no matter how much you pray. But rather he uses suffering so that we can connect to the sufferings of Christ in order to make us more like Christ. So David is having this experience, and so he is sinned against God, and yet he's asking the Lord not to discipline him in his anger, uh, but to, to discipline, to take care of him, but to be gracious to him in this. Notice in these words how even David describes himself. Look at the adjectives that are used here. He says, I'm languishing because of his sin. He feels that bad that he's languishing. That his bones are troubled. He goes on to say in this passage here in verse 3 that my soul is greatly troubled. Paul is using this. He has sinned against God and this is the way that he feels about his sin. When is the last time you have ever felt that bad about your sin? Because immediately what we do is we run to this. Well, this must be talking about David and Bathsheba or the murdering of Uriah, her husband, or he just did something. But what if it's like, man, he, he flipped someone the bird as he was riding his camel because they put out in front of him. I don't have any idea. <laughs> Our automatically is to think he must have done something really, really bad. And maybe he did. But he sure wasn't justifying it. He sure wasn't saying, well, that's not as bad as that guy did or that gal did. David is in this position, ladies and gentlemen, because he understands that no matter how big or how small that his sin that he has committed is an all-out treason against a holy God. And when he thinks about how he has displeased, disobeyed God who has saved him, who is sanctifying him, who has filled him with the Holy Spirit, who has given him Christ, that he's languishing over it. Not sitting back saying, well, it's not as bad as the next guy. Or I've done much worse, God, you know. But rather, to his very marrow of his bones, he is greatly troubled. And yet he goes on here in verse 3 but to say, but you, O Lord, how, how long? In the midst of my anguish, where again, that's a personal thing or a sinful sort of thing, is that he's coming to the right source, though, in order to um, assess and, and to reflect on the sin, is he's coming back to the character and to the nature of God. He's coming back to God. But have you ever been in this moment where you're wrestling in something within your life and you're just waiting on the Lord? Why, why God, why will you not intervene? Why will you not speak into this 
and you're languishing and you're struggling. Job experienced this, right? Don't have time to go into all the story of Job. Job has got in the Bible, probably the oldest book inside the Old Testament. Anyway, he loses everything in his life, like kids, business, loses it, everything. Tons of problems in Job's lives, life. He loses his all, and in agony, in Job 31-35, he's waiting on the Lord, and he pleads, prays, screams, let the Almighty answer me. Why, God? Answer me. Don't show me the cold shoulder. Don't give me the silent treatment. Yes, I have sinned against you and your holiness. But God, I, I, I need you. Notice that, that David in his sin doesn't run and try to clean up himself up good enough so that he can eventually come back to God like many of us do. Like, you've sinned and so go. God is not going to listen to my prayers right now. God is not going to be pleased with me if I read his holy word. So I'm just going to distance myself from those things. And when I feel better about myself, then I'll come back to God because he ultimately will feel better. No, that's not what David does. In the midst of his weakness, while he was still weak, he runs to the character of God. And even though he feels this relational distance, notice where he is still at in the presence of God. He goes on in verses 4 to 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of steadfast love, for then uh, in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, which is another name for like the grave, um, death, grave, who will give you praise? Notice he turns here and he's praying, Lord, in my sin, I'm languishing, I'm struggling, um, I'm, I'm turning to you. Notice as Pastor Todd passed, uh, pointed out last week, the times that he uses, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. Notice he's not going to his wife or many wives in his case. He's not going to the, the, the news. He, he, he isn't going to social media. He isn't going to the internet of the day. He, he isn't going to any of these things, but rather in his sin, because ultimately, no matter who he has hurt in the peripheral, he is ultimately sinned against an almighty, holy God. And yet David runs to the throne room of the Lord in pleading with him to please come to his rescue. Oh, Lord, deliver my life. Notice that. Deliver me. Turn. Oh, Lord, deliver me. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Even for the salvation here is for the goodness and for the glory of God. David is reminding God to re remember his promises. Notice as you keep reading here, maybe this is a description of you even this week. In verse 6 and 7, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And you ever cried so much that you can't cry anymore? You ever found yourself laying, laying on the carpet, laying on the the floor, just pleading with the Lord, like, don't leave me, don't forsake me. The word flood there is a rare word inside the Hebrew language, but essentially it just means like his, his bed had become a bath, it was so wet. 
is flooding. Mamas, you just wore out, frustrated, hurt. The only safe place that you, you have is to maybe go into the shower. and You can't tell the difference between the water that's coming out of the head and the water that is coming out of your eyes. Man, I've had some moments like that. Pleading with the Lord to intervene. Pleading with the Lord to do something in your kids' lives, your husband, your wife, your friend, your mom, your dad. But what about pleading with the Lord? to not be distant from you in your sin. There just seems like there's no wins. Just get pounded and pounded over and over and over again. Got those friends, it seems like everything that they touch turns to gold, and sorry, former child, former dad of an elementary school but your friends, they seem like they, everything they touch turns to gold, and, but you got cheese touch, if you know what that is. <laughs> it's like what Laura's grandmother used to say to me and her all the time. It's like, Laura, if you and Eric didn't have any bad luck, y'all wouldn't have any luck at all. Adam knows that because every time I'm hanging out with him, something breaks down, as it did yesterday. We spent four hours trying to change one tire in the middle of the woods. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, man, life just did not turn out the way I expected it. I stopped doing five-year plans a long time ago because they just make good, like, kindling for fires. You're single, you long to be married. You've been married to the one, and you got a divorce. You're battling an ongoing sickness. Your children are just mean. They've gone wayward. They've gone prodigal. Your home isn't a sanctuary. There's a legacy behind you of just broken relationship and friendship after friendship. You fall into sin that is destroying your life. As a kid who grew up in the 80s, I love 80s movies. And one of the things as a, a small kid in the 80s growing up was, is I thought when I become an adult, I'm never getting trapped in quicksand because quicksand is everywhere. <laughs> because every 80s movie, somebody getting stuck in the mog, right? And so I just imagine as a kid, man, quicksand, that's dangerous, Never seen quicksand. But I've been in a lot of places that I couldn't seem to get out of. And it seems like the more you fight, what happens? The more you sink. The harder you work, the harder you grit your teeth, to 
sink deeper and deeper and deeper. You find yourself alone in a situation or even in your sin, weeping, groaning, and asking, where are you? Some of us here at the church like this. Uh, he's an artist, musician, author, you name it, pretty much this guy does it. He's a Christian, and his name's Andrew Peterson. We sing some of his songs here at the church. And Andrew Peterson, he's in Nashville. He, he wrote a song, I think in 2014, um, called The Silence of God. I want to read you three of the stanzas from that because I think it's very reflective of what we're talking about today. See if this resonates. The Silence of God by Andrew Peterson. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's pleading for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed upon up to that cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. What a description in modern form of this psalm and so many others. See, some of you are here right now and you have no idea what I'm talking about and it's because you're not Christians. Some of you are experiencing silence today because you don't know him. Others are experiencing silence because you do know him. But we see within this, even in this passage, verses 8 through 10, we see a change in the tone, don't we? He goes from talking about all of this problems that he's having to now talking about God's response. And what is God's response? He says, depart from me, workers of all evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my, what? Weeping. Verses 1 through 7, he's pleading, Lord, listen to me. Yes, I have sinned, but do not remove your presence from me, O Lord. To verses 8 and 10, the Lord has heard my cries. Now, look at your Bibles. Nobody told you to put those up, kids. Notice between 7 and 8, there's a stanza break. And so I want to be very clear here this morning. You know what we don't know in this psalm is the time frame between 7 and 8. Because again, he's probably writing this after this has already happened, right? He's looking back and then he's writing this. Make sense? And what we don't know is, is that one of the things that you need to understand about being a good scripture reader is that Christians are people in the wait. That's why we call Advent the waiting. 
is we're waiting on God to do something. And, and we see that in our prayers that often it is, it is once we've gone through it that then we can see back in the providence of God how he has responded to our pleading. Even when in the moment we feel like he is distant from us, we see later on the, the, the complete change in, in David's tone and the change in our tone as we acknowledge that was really, really, really hard. And yet the Lord has brought me through it. And I can see that now, what I could not see when my eyes were filled with the tears pleading before the Lord. I never thought that this would be the outcome that I would see. So what is our response? This morning, it is very important for us to understand that our, our response is to remember that his, his purpose for disciplining us, even if it appears, get this, because this is such a preachy thing to say, and it was like everyone I read this week, they all said this, so this is not original to me, but I'm sure it is. God's silence is not his absence. God's silence is not his absence. We've got to understand that as Christians... That God's purpose in disciplining Christians is always for the building up of those believers. As Hebrews 12 would tell us, that it is God, he disciplines those whom he loves. For the non-Christian, if you're here today, the discipline that he's coming for you is the wrath of God over your sin. Judgment is coming. The full brunt of divine wrath that was poured out on Jesus as, as a Christian substitute will be poured rightly so out upon you. Both are disciplined. One is in love. That's why we're working through this difficult thing is I want to grow you, mature you, nurture you, see you become the son and daughter that I've uh, created you to be. The other over sin will, will be separation from God's love, and we call that place hell. We've got to remember who God is and his purpose for disciplining us, that he loves us. The, the purpose of God's silence is to drive you and I to his presence. And we see that illustrated in this psalm. David has greatly sinned. But notice, he does not run further from God. What does he do? He runs to God. He runs to God. And so that, that's the purpose in the silence, is that we're seeing the, 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 the correct results of a person who understands their relationship with God, understands their own magnitude of their own sin, and yet what does it do? It drives them to be on their knees. It drives them to pray. It drives them to the Word. It drives them to God's presence. And, it's, and God is using what appears to be silence to us to actually act Activate our faith in him by driving us to that place. See, if things are always good, you and I have a propensity to not think much about God. It is often when things have 
gone awry. Will has fallen off the bike. That we run to him. We see this in David's example to us. God will use whatever means necessary, brothers and sisters, in Christ to drive the people to himself. This is the illustration of Scripture over and over and over and over and over again. His desire is us to go, as we see here in this passage, from weeping to to worshiping God in spite of the grief over our sin. And and some of you, maybe in this room, again, if you're a non-Christian here, you're really struggling maybe with this understanding of the silence of God because it always appears like God is silent with you, and that's because you're lost. God doesn't deal with non-Christians the same way that he deals with believers. And you become comfortable in the silence. Like you become comfortable even in your own sin. And yet if you're a believer in this room today, then, then again, the, the temptation is this to make light of it. And yet God is calling us to something deeper still. He's calling us to understand that, that the smallest of sins against his holiness is, is leap years. It's, it's a magnitude, a declaration that, that you want to be who God is and that he does not take that lightly and neither should you and I. So non-Christians, they're just living their lives, taking this lightly. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, is I think that the more mature we become, actually, the more we begin to recognize the smallest of things and how those are grievances against a holy God. And yet, we shouldn't even take those smallest of things lightly, but, but rather, from the very marrow of our bones, God, help me. Help us, Lord Jesus. We also need to understand that this side of the cross and resurrection is that we have something called the canon of the scripture. Like we have the Bible. I always get really weary anyway when someone says that God said this to me. And you should be leery of it as well. Because a lot of times what they say is the exact opposite of what God says in his word. And so maybe even in God's appeared silence, because God has never spoken to me audibly, is that even in God's appeared silence, his appearance of silence is that he's really trying to use what appears to be silent to drive you to the very word of God. Because when I notice people are struggling in their faith, they're questioning their faith, they're doubting their faith, they're deconstructing or wrestling with this or wrestling with that, and you were to ask him simple questions, like basic Christian questions, like, man, what's your prayer life like? Most of them say, I don't really pray. Well, what's, what's your reading of God's word like? I don't, I don't know that I really struggle. I don't, how many Christians are you hanging out with? Are you belonging to a Christian church that preaches Jesus and preaches the actual Bible? Well, no wonder. 
God is trying to use all of these things to point us, again, back to himself. And so even when we have this appeared silence, may we recognize this side of the cross and resurrection in the canon of the scripture of what you have in your hands right now is that the Lord has spoken and we've got it in front of us. He doesn't need to say anything new. He has said all that he needs to say up until this point in his word and ultimately through Jesus, who is the word made flesh. So what should we do if we are struggling with sin and feeling this separation from God? We need to examine ourselves. Again, David's feeling this because of the weightiness of his sin. We need to repent of our sin. That means to turn. You're living this life and you turn and in faith follow Jesus. That's what we call repentance is this turning from this way of life to following Jesus. And so you're living in sin, examine yourself, see that there is sin and turn and follow after Jesus. Again, in his silence, we trust what he has already spoken over what we see or feel. I'm going to trust his word and what we have in Scripture over what I feel in this very moment. And that's when we begin to see our weeping leading to worship. But I want to be very honest. There's not a time. It's a process. And so in your impatience, when you're too tired to pray, that's when we pray. When you're too tired and fatigued to read God's word, read his word. And when you wake up on a Sunday morning, you're just not feeling it today. You go gather anyway. When MC and you got a big long list of things that you need to be doing, but missional communities are happening and you didn't get your to-do list done, you check your priorities and you put that to-do list to the side and you go to a missional community. And in that, we begin to see the, the Lord is at work. I read you earlier a portion from Andrew Peterson's song, but I, I, I did not read the last verse. Let's see what the last verse says. In the last verse it says, What sorrow is carried by, heart, by, by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. And the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. The pain of what you're going through may remain. But the breaking will not. And brothers and sisters, it may not be until your faith becomes sight when you die. 
or when Jesus returns, that we will see a difference between those first seven verses, if you will, and eight, nine, and ten. That that gap of time may be your life. And then one day, when Jesus takes you home, or when he returns, that you and I will then look back and see that he was always there. That he was always speaking. That he was always working. And that his desire for those who are in Christ was never to break that reed. But to stretch it as far as possible. To bend it as far as possible. In order that you and I would see him even more clearly. That our aching may be here for a lifetime, but the breaking will not be forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, for your mercy, for your grace, for your long-suffering. Lord, we pray for the person that's lost here today that you would save them. Lord, we pray for the person, the brother and sister in Christ who's struggling here today. Lord, that you would be their hope. That you would visit with them. That you would speak with them. That whoever is in our midst today, that you would just do a mighty work in their lives, God. As they moan, as they ache. They tremble down to the very bones and soul. May you hear the cries of your people. And may we, the people of Mission Church, take our God seriously. Take our sin seriously. May we ache. But by your mercy and grace in Jesus, may we not break. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.